This message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. At the end, we will give information about how to contact us to receive a copy of this or other messages. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to read um, verses 10 to 15. We won't, we won't cover the whole thing tonight, but we'll get, I think, verses 10 and 11. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. So if you were to survey the the church landscape across our country and, let's say, even across our state, I wonder if we would be able to uh, observe a consistent set of foundational truths that we all had in common. If we were to gather up, and I'm not talking about uh, mainstream liberal Protestant churches, but uh, if we were to take evangelical Bible-believing churches and gather them all up and be able just to look at them as a whole, would we actually be able to identify a consistent set of foundational truths that we all had in common? I wonder also if we were able to make such observations, would we be able to discern what the church was trying to do? In other words, if we were able to gather them all up and look at them and examine them, would we be able to see that there was a a common mission, a purpose, a common goal that held these churches together? I think sometimes we look and we see the church broadly speaking, and we have to ask ourselves, what in the world is the church really trying to do? What is it that we are really about? What is it that we're really built on? Well, the Corinthians, of course, as we've seen, have, had lost their way. And one of the reasons they had lost their way was because they lost sight of the foundation upon which they were built. And not only had they lost sight of the foundation, but they also had uh, lost sight of good quality control over what was being built. 
And so not only are they missing the foundation, but they, they also were failing to, uh, to evaluate what was being built on that foundation. And so the Apostle Paul wants them to think and to think deeply and to act in a way that's radically different than what they had been doing. And so you remember a few weeks ago, however long ago it was, we looked at verses 1 through 4. So remember, we've been, we've been tracing Paul's argument, which really starts back in chapter 1 and verse 10. And, and of course, the idea is division. You know, I hear from Chloe's people that you're saying some of Paul, some of Apollos, some of Cephas, but I'm of Christ. And, 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 and Paul goes on, and then, you remember, he shifts gears, what looks like to us at least, him shifting gears, and he starts talking about the cross, and he starts talking about the wisdom and the power of God in Christ crucified. And the reality is, is that he's not departed from the discussion on division, he's actually getting to the root issue of the division, which is a departure from the gospel itself. To depart from the gospel leads to a party spirit, and to depart from the gospel leads to attaching yourself to certain people that you think have certain special insight in a way that others don't. And it led to pride, it led to arrogance, it led to divisiveness. And so Paul has been hammering away at what true wisdom is and what the real power of God is. The Corinthians had this, had this sensationalized idea of wisdom and knowledge and power. And Paul is making abundantly clear that real wisdom, real knowledge, real power is not in some esoteric uh, uh, heavenly wisdom that only a few people know. It's actually embodied in the cross of Jesus. It's embodied in the gospel. And so he then in chapter 2, verses 6 through 16, begins to say, you know, we really do speak wisdom among the mature, two Corinthian buzzwords. But what Paul does is he takes the Corinthian buzzwords and he, and, and he turns them on their head and reminds them that the spirit that speaks through them actually is doing what? Is doing nothing other than exalting Christ and preaching Christ. He concludes that section with, The natural man doesn't understand. He doesn't embrace the things of God because these things are discerned by the Spirit. And, of course, the natural man doesn't have the Spirit, but the spiritual man, that is the man who has the Spirit, he is supposed to be able to discern all things. And then he says, and we have the mind of Christ. And then he turns around and starting in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, says this, and I, brethren, so remember, there's no chapter breaks when Paul is writing. I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, that is, men of the spirit, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not able For you're still fleshly. For since there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? And so Paul's saying, for for all that, you know, we've labored among you to teach you, uh, you, you haven't got it. You haven't understood. Paul, and we'll, we'll deal with this in a couple of weeks, but... Paul is not saying that there are two different categories of Christians at this point. That's not what he's saying. 
But what he is saying is that the Corinthians themselves are, are immature. They're, they're, they're acting like newborn babes. And here they were thinking that they were full-grown, spiritually mature, super-wise people. And let, let me just say that if you perceive yourself as super-mature and exceptionally wise, you're just probably not. Okay? And so the Corinthians just had this elevated view of themselves. And so chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, is like Paul just like spiritually just punching him in the nose. Saying, you think, you, you think that you are spirit people? You're not spirit people, you're flesh people. And when you're saying, oh, you know, you know vote for Paul. No, no, vote for Apollos. You're just acting like mere men. Just ordinary, the ordinary human beings act like this. You're supposed to be Jesus' last day spirit people who act and think and live differently, and you're not. And so, of course, this whole idea of attaching themselves to different leaders then causes Paul to go into this, uh, really this magnificent section that we looked at a couple weeks ago, five through nine, and uh, not to rehearse the whole thing, but what then is Apollos? Notice the what, not the who. What is then Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Boy, in a, in, in a, in an evangelical celebrity culture, right? Boy, we need to hear this. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one. In other words, they're, they're working together, right? But each will receive his own reward. There is going to be an account according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. That is, we're fellow workers. We belong to God. And then notice his language. You are God's field, God's building. What Paul does is he puts, he puts teachers, preachers, church leaders, he puts them in perspective for the Corinthians. You know, it, it, there's always a tendency that we have to fall off one side of the horse or the other. And there are people who so elevate pastors and preachers and their favorite teachers, uh, and they and they elevate them in a way that is carnal. They elevate them in a way in which puts them on, on, a, on a pedestal that makes them think that, you know, these guys, man, their feet must not even touch the ground. And then on the other hand, you know, you have people who just uh, disparage leadership with sort of a, you know, anarchist spirit of, you know, nobody's going to tell me what to do. And they reject any kind of authority. And you have this, you have these, these two polarizing opposites in the body. And of course, the Corinthians, the Corinthians are... Uh, are somewhat a humorous case in the sense that you see both of these strains running deeply through the Corinthians. This glomming on to leaders and, and extolling them and putting them in a position that they would never want to be. And then yet when it comes right down to it, 
resisting, rejecting Paul's apostolic authority to lead them in the right way. And so Paul just reminds them, at the end of the day, all of God's ministers, you remember this, right, are either plowboys or water boys. Okay? Just keep in mind, so I'm the plowboy, Jason's water boy. All right? That's the way it works. But who's the ultimately important person in this whole process? Well, it's God himself. He's the one that causes the growth. The guy that plants can't cause anything to grow, and the guy that waters can't cause anything to grow. They just have their own personal responsibility before the Lord to do what they've been called to do, and they do it with all of their might, and it's God who causes the growth. Right? And that's, that's the way that it works. So the glory goes to God, but... Each one is responsible for the, for the calling that they have. Now, it's actually those two things. You are God's building, and each one will receive a reward. Those two things actually now begin to fill out verses 10 to 15. And Paul is going to expand now on the theme of the Corinthians as God's building, and he's going to then expand on the workers getting a reward. Now, what I want to do is I want to make sure that we keep the text in its context. One of the, one of the, the really bad tendencies that we have is to uh, what someone called um, decontextualizing the Bible. Just ignoring the context of the Bible. Taking passages out of their context. And this passage, like so many others in 1 Corinthians, by the way, this passage has been detextualized as a text that deals with individualistic popular piety about how I build in my own life. And that's not what, what is in view as Paul's dealing with this idea of you are God's building. He's not talking about how you build into your own life. As, as important as that might be as in terms of spiritual disciplines and so forth, that's not what Paul is focusing on here. Paul is focusing on the church. This text is first and foremost a text for the church. It's a text for teachers and preachers and church leaders and, and how they build and with what materials they build. It is an exhortation to the church in a way that prepares them to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It's a passage for the church that should, in a sense, warn and exhort and equip the church to build only on Christ and him crucified and to make sure that they exercise the best quality control in who they allow to build. So the outline, at least of verses 10 and 11, goes like this. Paul laid the foundation for the church. That's A. B, someone else is now building on it. B1, but let that someone take care of how they build. Then back to A1, the foundation Paul laid is Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at verse 10. Paul says, according to the grace which of God, which was given to me. Now, for Paul, his, his view of, of ministry 
That was an act of grace from God to him. Okay? This, this was not something that, um, that Paul had earned by virtue of his education. This was not something that Paul had earned. Uh, by the way, if, if Paul's ministry would have been according to uh, Paul's plans, who would have been the apostle to the Jews and who would have been the apostle to the Gentiles? Don't you think with Paul's learning... And Paul's uh, um, uh, rabbinic skills, his education, his, his uh, immersion, remember, a Hebrew of Hebrews, so forth, don't you think he would have rather been the apostle to the Jews? And of course, who does God pick to be the apostle to the Jews? The Galilean hillbilly that real Jewish Jews would not have had much respect for that is Simon Peter, who is called to be the apostle to the Gentiles, Saul of Tarsus, a guy that knew more Old Testament than most people walking around living at that time. And, but here's the thing is that God's the one that gets to direct these things. He's the one that assigns. He's the one who calls. And Paul understood that his, his ministry, his calling, was just as much an act of divine grace as his conversion was. And so Paul could say later in 1 Corinthians, I, talking about it compared to the other apostles, I worked harder than all of them. Paul, you braggart. Yet not I, but the grace of God in me. For by the grace of God, I am what I am. For Paul, the the ability and the opportunity to preach the gospel to the Gentiles was grace which was given to him. His calling, his gifts, his mission was all of grace. In fact, Anthony Thistleton in his fine, gigantic commentary suggests that this expression, according to the grace of God which was given to me, should be understood as according to the gracious privilege God has given to me. Now, for Paul, again, um, ministry, calling, mission was not just simply an act of divine grace to him, but he also saw that, that as a result, he would be a conduit of grace to those uh, to whom he ministered. This is, uh, in a sense, he talks about this in the opening chapter, in chapter 1 and verse 4, talking about the grace which had been given to the Corinthians. Well, how did that grace come to the Corinthians? That grace came to the Corinthians by Paul's ministry to the Corinthians. Paul was a channel of grace to the Corinthians. He could talk in, 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 uh, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 5, he's talking, he says, through whom, talking about the grace of God, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, those two things coming together, to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for his name's sake. And so Paul says, so the gracious privilege, that grace of calling, gifting, and mission that God has given to me. Now, before we even complete the sentence, just stop and think about 
Think about the way Paul talks. Who's getting the glory here? God is getting the glory. God is getting the glory. Paul is not, Paul's not shining the spotlight on himself as if he's saying, hey, Corinthians, get your act together and realize how awesome I am. I, I'm, I'm Christ's gift to you. Get over it. Enjoy it, right? That's not what he's saying at all. In fact, I found this, this really this terrific statement from Calvin. He's speaking about Paul. He says, he always takes diligent heed not to usurp to himself a single particle of the glory that belongs to God. For he refers all things to God and leaves to himself except him, except his having been an instrument. And so Calvin is saying, whenever Paul's talking, he is always making sure he's never going to take one particle of glory that belongs to God. He's going to continually point people to God. And the only sense in which he ever refers to himself is as an instrument in the hands of a gracious kind God. Okay. So through the grace of God, which was given to me, and then here's the next phrase, as a wise master builder. Now, this phrase, wise master builder, by the way, this is fun. The, the Greek term for master builder is architecton. Okay. From, of course, we, we derive our word architect. And so, Fee thinks, along with a number of other commentators, that, quote, wise master builder is related to his prior discussion on wisdom, right? True wisdom, coming from the Spirit, focusing on Christ. So what he's doing by saying a wise master builder is he's contrasting his wisdom with the wisdom in Corinth who were missing real wisdom, okay? Um, one says his wisdom as a founder was to make no account of wisdom. Right? So a wise master builder. And that, that makes sense to me. But, but my, uh, my, first, my first Greek teacher, Dr. J. Shainer, in 1986-87, wrote an article in 1988 in which he had discovered a number of temple inscriptions and other extra-biblical, we would just call them receipts, where this exact phrase, wise master builder, is used. What's interesting about Dr. Shainer's findings is that the person who was described as the wise master builder was the person who would be in charge of the work in terms of the day-to-day operations, the one who was the supervisor over the work. In a number of the contracts that have been found, they outline the, uh, in contractual form the responsibilities of the wise master builder. And so the wise master builder was responsible for, one, overseeing the whole project. Two, the wise master builder was responsible for hiring all labor and securing the best craftsmanship. 
Also in these contracts, the wise master builder is warned against fraud and is encouraged to compel all of those under him to avoid all fraudulent behavior. If you know anything about construction, fraud can be a big deal, right? There was also uh, warnings in the contracts about damages that could happen to the building or the materials and how the wise master builder would be responsible for any repairs to the building or any replacements of damaged material. Payments and fines and all of that were spelled out. And then typically in these contracts for wise master builders, the standards of worthily done work were clearly set forth. Now, I think that although wisdom has a, a heavy contextual sense, I think Paul uses a stock phrase that the Corinthians would have understood. A wise master builder, Paul is, Paul is presenting himself as uh, not uh, as if he's some sort of superstar or, uh, you know, all-star builder, but he is uh, presenting himself as the one whom God has appointed to oversee the work there. And Paul bears a tremendous sense of responsibility. In fact, you need to remember that, that, that this letter will lead to another letter to the Corinthians, which we don't have, which will lead to the second Corinthians, which we do have. And Paul is deeply concerned about what's going on in the Corinthian assembly, who's building onto the church, who's teaching, who's leading them astray. So Paul took his responsibility as this wise master builder with the utmost care and concern. He understood that he was going to give an account. And so what does he say? As a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. Now this, this of course, refers to Paul's planting efforts in Corinth. That's what it is. To lay the foundation is the same as I planted and he's going to expand on that in just in just a minute but you need to understand that that again what Paul is talking about is he's talking about his his unique role in coming and laying the foundation of the Corinthian church and notice what he says and another is building on it now, there's, there's probably no way uh, that, that, that Paul has any particular individual in mind. Apollos is, is, is off of the scene in, in Corinth, so he's not referring to Apollos. But what he is doing is, is in a sense, he's, he's shifting away from the work that he and Apollos had done, especially his work as the planter, as the one who laid the foundation. And he's now shifting to those who are currently working in building the Corinthian church. And what's interesting is that later in the next chapter, Paul will say in 4.15, he says, for though you have countless guides in Christ, (laughs) countless guides. (laughs) This is before the internet. This is before television. This is before radio. Uh, You have countless guides in Christ. You do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 
So you can well imagine the Corinthians just welcoming just about anybody in. Remember, most of the most of the preachers in those days, in the first few centuries of the Christian church, were were itinerant preachers. That's why we actually have uh, instruction, for instance, in Third John on what to do with itinerant preachers and who do you receive and who do you not receive and who do you bring into your home and who do you not bring into your home. And so the Corinthians, no doubt, had lots of people who were all trying to build. And uh, I think Paul probably thought there were too many cooks in the kitchen in Corinth. Alliteration completely accidental. Now, this idea of building, common terminology for ministry that is for the edification, the upbuilding of the church, By the way, to show you how important this is to Paul, in 2 Corinthians, he will use this same verb three more times in close succession in terms of God calling him to build up, not to tear down, which, by the way, is rooted in Jeremiah's ministry. Okay, But but Jeremiah was, was actually called to do what? To build up and to tear down, to plant and to pluck up what had been planted. Paul says, my ministry is not to tear down, my ministry is to build up. And so, and so Paul himself saw this, this continued role in the life of the Corinthian assembly. And um, this, this actually got me thinking. I laid the foundation. There are others who were, who were building on it. So could it be that the, the current teachers that the Corinthians had just welcomed in. The current teachers were, were fostering that sense of divisiveness, fostering those senses of elitism, spiritual one-upmanship. Very possible, no way to know for sure. But here's what Paul says. Each man must be careful how he builds on it. That's the warning. By the way, this is a warning. It, it, it is an imperative, it's a command, but it's a third person. So I would say he must watch out how he builds. Whoever it is who is building, whoever it is who comes in and is not laying the foundation, but is building supposedly on the foundation, you better be careful to how you build. And in other words, what Paul's doing is Paul's saying, listen, there is, there is a building code. When it comes to God's plan for the church, there's a building code. When it comes to God's plan for the church, there are, there are standards by which he wants his workmen to work. And so you better be careful because there's a building code. But more than that, you better be really careful that you are in line with the building code. He's going to actually tell us in, in verses uh, 12 through 15 that there's going to be an inspection, right? That inspection. So you have to be careful how you're building. Gordon Fee says, thus the indefinite pronouns he must refers to the Corinthians themselves. And and the whole point of the analogy is to warn them of the consequences of persisting on their present course. 
So Corinthians, if you still, if, if you think your idea of spirituality and your idea of wisdom and your idea of knowledge and your idea of maturity, if you think those ideas are the ideas that are supposed to be governing and directing the church, you have to understand you're not building with care. Verse 11, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, Paul was talking about building, and now he seems to to, uh, shift back to foundation. Nobody can lay another foundation alongside the other foundation, which has already been laid. And so you might think, well, Paul's uh, getting up there in age, and he's just kind of repeating himself. Well, Paul is repeating himself, but he's repeating himself for the sake of, one, keeping things in focus, and two, getting ready to expand on the theme. Now, what he does is he actually um, uh, expands a little bit on this idea. I laid the foundation, and then he turns around and says, and guess what? You, You don't come along and lay another foundation. You're not able to do that. By the way, what's interesting is in uh, Romans chapter 15, the Apostle Paul tells us one of the uh, motives in his own ministry was to go where there was no foundations laid, where Christ had not been preached. Now, Paul is setting up, as it were, the why and the how of the building and why it's so important. He, he wants, if he doesn't say this part in verse 11, then the Corinthians, I think, probably could have just said, well, yeah, you've got Paul's foundation, but you can have another foundation. I mean, I don't really like Paul's foundation because I'm not of Paul anyway. I mean, I'm of the different party. And so, you know what, let, let's do a different foundation. And Paul says, you can't do another foundation. And there's a very simple reason for that. It's because the foundation is Jesus Christ himself. Boy, this is important. The church, Paul said in Ephesians 2.20, the church is built on, on the prophets and the apostles, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. Paul says, listen, if, okay, if you're talking about Sertoma or, uh, you know, some other kind of service club, sure. But when it comes to the church, there's only one foundation. When it comes to the church, that foundation is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. In other words, it is the person and work of Jesus Christ, which is the foundation of the Christian church. And if a, if a church does not have that foundation of the person and work of Christ, then it is not a Christian church. Period. I don't care if they have Christian church on their sign. If they're not built on the foundation of Jesus Christ and him crucified, they're not a Christian church. And so when Paul says the foundation is Jesus Christ, we, we have to, we have to say this, we have to say this accurately. Paul is not saying in one sense that the foundation of the church is a set of doctrines. Okay. But, 
The foundation of the church is, in fact, the person of Christ, and we understand the person of Christ and the work of Christ through biblical teachings, through biblical doctrines, all right? So, you know, some, some commentators try to get real cute and say, well, it's not doctrine, it's a person. And I just want to say, you can't understand the person of Christ without understanding the doctrine of Christ. The minute that you say Jesus Christ, unless you're just saying that Jesus is his first name and Christ is his last name, you're actually making a profound theological statement about an Old Testament expectant figure who would be the son of David and the son of God. When you say Jesus Christ, you're talking about who he is in his person as both God and man. That's profoundly doctrinal. That's profoundly theological. If you don't understand the the, the fact that Jesus Christ is 100% God and 100% man, then you don't know the Jesus Christ of the Bible. If you don't understand that he lived a perfect life, sinless life and perfectly obeyed his heavenly father, then you don't understand the life of Christ, no matter how well you might know the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, I would suggest to you that there are uh, many people who are probably in hell today who believe that the Sermon on the Mount was a great ethic on how to live their life and yet never came to grips with the one who gave the Sermon on the Mount. If you don't understand what Jesus Christ does on Calvary, if you don't understand that this is a sacrifice, that this is an act of atonement, that Jesus Christ is actually the sin bearer, that he is the one who became a curse for us. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we would become the righteousness of God in him. If you don't understand the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on Calvary, then you don't understand Christ. If you don't understand the empty tomb, if you you don't understand his present work as our great high priest, if you don't understand that one of these days he will return in power and glory to judge both the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. If you don't understand Jesus as prophet, priest, and king as the God-man who offered himself up as a sacrifice for our sins, who rose up bodily from the dead, ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and one of these days will come again to judge both the living and the dead. If you don't understand those things and you just think Jesus is a great teacher, then you don't know Jesus. The only Jesus, the Jesus of history and the Jesus of faith is the Jesus of scripture who is the full Christ. And so Paul says, that's the foundation. It's no accident that he said in in 2.2, I was determined to know nothing among you except what? Christ and him crucified. He didn't say, I determined that nothing among you except seven principles for how to have a better marriage. I was determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so this idea of foundation, I mean, think about this and think about how many times in the New Testament this 
text is echoed. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. He who believes will not make haste. Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. The old commentator Godet says, if the preacher would lay another foundation, it would be the beginning of a new religion and a new church, but not the continuation of the Christian work. Another has said, pastors and preachers move on and die, but only a church built on Jesus Christ survives. This this last week, me and about 4,000 other people were crowded into Grace Community Church down in Sun Valley. John MacArthur's been the pastor there since, what, 1969, right? 1969. 1969. I was two years old. (laughs) And I'll tell you what, God has blessed the work there. God has blessed that church. God has blessed the labors of John MacArthur. But you know what? John MacArthur is going to die. And when they lay his body in the ground, guess what will happen? Grace Community Church will continue on. Because that church is not built on the foundation of John MacArthur. The church is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Churches that wither and die when when, when somebody dies... Just means they were built on the wrong foundation. So, Paul's point is simple. The superstructure, which you build on top of that foundation, better be consistent and compatible and conform to that foundation. So, be careful how you build. And next week, we'll look at gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. But for tonight, let me just ask two questions. Number one, how can you tell if Jesus Christ is the foundation of a church? I want to suggest to you three things. There's probably a lot more, all right? But I only have so much time on a Wednesday, so. How can you tell if Jesus Christ is the foundation of a church? Number one, look at the teaching, right? Is... The Christ-centered word being taught. If it's a Bible study on the moral principles that were displayed in the Andy Griffith show. (laughs) Don't laugh. About 15 years ago, there was a Bible study that came out that was based on the Andy Griffith show. Don't get me wrong. I love Andy Griffith and Barney Fife as a hero of mine, but hardly the material from which to teach. Agreed? Now, listen to the teaching. <laughs> Do people bring their Bibles to church? Is there, a, is there a sense of we're looking at the text? Is, are, is, is the word being preached in a way that Christ is being pointed to? Is, is the gospel regularly proclaimed? Or could you go to that church for months on end and, and, and at the end of three months still not know what it meant to be right with God? 
Is Jesus Christ explicitly proclaimed? Our culture is pretty, is pretty okay with generic God talk. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. As the only way to the Father. Is that Jesus explicitly proclaimed? Does the message of the cross and the resurrection permeate the ministries of the word? So that after, after, you know, six months, you're not sitting around going, I wonder if these people actually believe Jesus was raised from the dead. My dad, I don't think he listens regularly, so I would tell a story about him. If he gets mad at me later, I'll know he listened. He was going to a church, lives in the Sacramento area, will not tell you what church it was because they have satellite churches that are close, okay? And he calls me one day, and I was, I was praying like, Lord, please, get him, get him into a good Bible-teaching church, please. He calls me one day, he says, you know, he says, I, something's really has been bothering me about such and such church. I said, what, what's that, Dad? I'm like, yes. He goes, you know, I've been here for six months. He goes, people are nice, people are friendly, lots of stuff for kids, blah, blah, blah. He says, but it occurred to me that the only time the pastor mentions the name of Jesus is when he closes his prayers. And in six months, I've not heard him talk about sin. He said, I don't think I should go there anymore, do you? And I'm like, no, run, run. You, you, you have to say that the, a, a church is built on the foundation of the word of God and Jesus Christ is a church that will preach sin and the necessity of the new birth and the importance, the, the, the absolute eternal importance of trusting in Christ alone for salvation. They will preach the cross. They will preach the empty tomb. These are the themes that permeate the teaching of God's word. So how can you tell if a church is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ? Look at the teaching. Second, I would say, look at the worship. Now, I'm not not thinking for a, 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 a millisecond that this is answered by, do you sing old songs or new songs? I don't give a hoot. Listen to the worship. Does the gospel permeate the songs that are sung in worship? Is there a reverence for the triune God and a gospel permeation in in the worship? Are the great themes of redemption sung? Is the cross sung about? Is it extolled? And again, I don't care how old the song is. What are we singing about? And then third, I would say, look at the people. Now, I realize that this could be dangerous because you might be looking at an oddball that hasn't been shaped by the foundation or the culture of the church. Okay? Right? I mean, you might be looking at a visitor. But look at the people. Look at the people. 
as a whole? Is there a humility in knowing that we're actually sinners? And not just generic sinners, i.e. imperfect people, but like real sinners who really need a savior. Is there that sense of humility of knowing that we're sinners? Is, is there actually a joy in Jesus Christ as a great savior? Because one thing is absolutely uh, inviolable bond, and that is if you know that you're a great sinner, and you know that Christ is a great Savior, and you as a great sinner, by the grace of God, has put your faith in this great Savior, there is joy in this great salvation. So is there joy among the people in knowing Christ? And uh, are, are, are the people salvation conscious? What I mean by that is, do the eternal realities of heaven and hell, being saved and lost, the necessity of being born again, the necessity of having your sins forgiven, is there a consciousness that these are the most important things? The election in November pales into absolute, utter insignificance when compared to where will you spend eternity? Is, is, is the church, are the people salvation conscious? Is, is the gospel a part of conversation? Second question, very quickly. How do we build rightly upon that foundation of Christ? Well, one, very clearly, you cannot add or try to expand the foundation, right? One commentator, I found this absolutely humorous. He says, you, you can't say, hey, let's add a new wing founded on wisdom. Or let's build a new building founded on scientific knowledge. We rightly build upon this foundation by being faithful, first of all, theologically or confessionally. You take the Bible seriously. You take doctrine seriously. The only way, people that don't take doctrine seriously will never be people who build on that foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones. And so in order to rightly build upon Christ, we need to be faithful theologically. We need to be faithful in the preaching of the word. We need to be faithful in the way that we do one another work with each other. We need to be faithful in the way that we counsel, encourage, exhort uh, each other. We need to be faithful in, in keeping in mind that we should be fulfilling the great commission. And so we want to be people who are reaching out to our community and out to the nations. Wasn't it a blessing to have Chris here? Wasn't it a blessing to hear about his work? I mean, when a missionary comes, by the way, come to Sunday school. That's where they're going to give their report. What's going on in his field of labor is to the glory of God. Boy, we ought to be interested in those things. 
I mean, I can't even think of an analogy that's even close of the contradiction of being a Christian who's not interested in missions. It's like, this, I, this is even bad. It's not even, it's like being a baker and not liking donuts. <laughs> I wish Steve was here. He would appreciate that. But that doesn't, doesn't even get to it because, because there should be something. He says, you know what? Man, we are, we are by God's grace building on this glorious foundation and we do it by reaching out. We do, we do it by, by witnessing to our boss and to our coworker and we do it by, we do it by organized efforts and we do it by just pray, pray for me that I have opportunity to talk to these women that I'm with all day. We, when you're building rightly on the foundation, you are thinking, how can I be faithful in reaching out for the sake of Christ? And so what in the world is the church doing? We should be all about our foundation, Jesus Christ, and we should be all about how we build on that foundation. You see, here's my goal. I hope that God gives me many years, all right? I hope that I live so long that Jason has to come to me one day and say, you know, you're repeating yourself in your sermons and drooling. (laughs) Maybe it's time you step down. I've told you this before, but we were having family worship one night. Zach was, I don't know, six or seven years old. And Zach says, Dad, when are you going to retire? I said, I'm not going to retire. I'm going to die preaching. He says, what if you die on a Saturday? (laughs) I don't mean die like while I am preaching, although that would be the way to go. That'd be the way to go. One of these days, I'm going to be dead. One of these days, almost all the elders will be dead. Jason will just be hitting middle age. (laughs) And you know what? What we do, day in and day out, week in and week out, is simply what God's called us to do. So that what's being built will last for generations to come. If I can quote a Martin Luther that wasn't Martin Luther, I have a dream. I have a dream of a day when Wetmore boys are elders in this church. Can you imagine? I can't either, but praise God. (laughs) Think about it. These little ankle biters that are running around that we always have to say, quit running. You're going to knock someone old over. That's the next generation. And they're going to be the preachers and the teachers in God's church. And so we have to be careful how we build today because it will affect tomorrow. Let's pray. 
Our blessed Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your church. Father, we thank you that Jesus has promised that I will build my church. Father, we thank you that it does not depend upon the man who runs or the man who wills, but on you who has mercy. And Father, we pray for our work here. We ask that you would give us uh, diligence and faithfulness. We pray that you would keep a hedge of protection around us, protect us from the wickedness and the snares of the devil. We pray, Father, that you would help us to press forward, press forward in following your son, press forward in reaching out, making disciples. And Father, we pray that that the superstructure that's built here would truly be built out of material which is imperishable, which will stand the last day. And Father, we ask for your help in these things. We realize that it is only by your grace which is given to us that we accomplish anything. And so we offer up our praise and our thanks to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. To receive a copy of this or other messages, call us at area code 775-782-6516 or visit our website, gracenevada.com.